It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. There are three different kinds of karmas in regards to how stuck they might be. Um, how are we on time? Okay. So there's dridda karma, which are fixed karmas. These give fixed results because they are so difficult to challenge or change. Dridda karmas usually appear when three or more factors relating to the same area of life give the same or similar indication. The greater the number of indications, the more fixed the karma and the more difficult it is to change. Dridda adridda karma, fixed, non-fixed. These occur whenever several factors relating to a particular area give similar indications. These karmas can be changed through the use of willpower, though considerable effort or determination is likely required. Adridda, non-fixed karmas. These give non-fixed results because they are easily altered. Adridda karmas usually have no more than one factor active in relationship to a particular area of life. Oops. Negative adridda karma is usually easily overcome with a little determination and common sense. And the great thing about this is, is that you can actually transform some of these karmas to non-fixed karmas. And it usually happens through habit. So dridda fixed karmas, um, the greater of number of indications point towards it. Okay, what would an example of that be? Let's go back to the idea of health. Well, let's say your mother and your father uh, both have heart disease and diabetes. Let's say that's one factor. Well, two factors, because your mother and your father have it. Let's say your grandparents had it too. All right, there's four more factors. Let's say all you do is go to your office and sit behind a desk, drink your soft drinks, eat your chips, come home, watch TV, listen to music, go to bed and repeat that. Well, there's at least seven or eight factors pointing towards things which will support heart disease, diabetes, and, and difficult health outcomes. You can't change your genetics, at least in theory. Uh, I believe it is possible to alter gene expression, but you can't change what your parents did and were up to. Can you get off the couch and go exercise? You sure can. Can you go for walks during your breaks at work? You sure can. Can you stop drinking the soda and the excess sugar? You sure can. Can you find a personal trainer to help you navigate this stuff intelligently? Yes, you can. So that, that thing which seemed to be such a fixed karma, and believe me, again, living in West Virginia, which is one of the states that has one of the highest uh, obesity rates and, um, well, just difficulties in that regard, you can be sure that I've come up against, not come up against, I've met people who, when you bring up being able to change their situation, so oh, I can't do it because my parents did that and so on and and I've got to go out to eat, and there's no good food options, and so on. They're not really interested, at least consciously, in changing. But you know, and I know, that there are things you can do. So we always have to be cautious about, is this really a fixed karma? Or is it just in our minds that it's fixed? Can we do something different? Um, dridda adridda. Things that can be changed through the use of willpower. Although considerable effort or determination is likely required. When I began practicing meditation, I, I meant business. I wanted to meditate. And I was so happy to hear uh, Danelle when she was talking about attending our uh, two-hour solstice meditation tomorrow. She's in New Zealand. It's 14 hours difference or something like that. So it's going to be 2 a.m. in the morning when she has to log in to do that. But she says, I've set my alarm. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I could tell by her voice that, yeah, she meant business. She was going to be there. Um, not everyone's going to do that. Not everyone wants to do that. But because of willpower, she's going to be able to overcome the typical habit of wanting to be asleep during that time. When I first began meditating, I wasn't very good at it at all, and I wanted to get up early and do it. So I had to find a way to force myself to do it. So what did I do? I did some very unpopular things. 
Number one, I set an alarm and I put it across the room. So I had to get up out of bed to go turn that alarm off. And I decided that when that alarm went off, I was just going to get up and go sit in my meditation chair and get started. Just start doing alternate nostril breathing. Just go. Not even think about it. And if my mind said, oh, I don't want to do it, I didn't care. I didn't listen to my mind. Um, Another thing that I had to do, um, I was in a long-term relationship at that point in time. Uh, I had a a beautiful woman uh, sleeping beside me every night. Um, It was very comfortable. And I noticed that when I was sleeping there, I didn't want to get out of bed. Well, who would want to in that situation? (laughs) So I decided that I was going to go sleep in the other room. And remember, I'd been in a long-term relationship. So to tell your partner, oh, I'm sorry, I can't sleep and snuggle with you anymore because I want to meditate. Mm. That can be stressful. But I told her, I said, this is important to me. And there was hurt feelings for a couple months. But eventually she understood and that passed. And I slept, I slept in this other room on a cot so I wouldn't be that comfortable. So it'd be easy for me to get up in the morning. So that was my use of willpower using considerable effort to make a change in my sleeping habits so I could meditate better. And I had to do the same thing with my diet, the people I hung out with. All these things had to occur, and it occurred through willpower, struggle, stress. But once you learn how to do it, it just becomes natural. Then things become what you call adrita karmas. So what would be an example of an adrita karma? Well, they're easily overcome. My friends come to visit, they want to stay up late and play music. When I was younger, it was hard for me to say, oh, I'm sorry, you got to leave, I got to go to bed. But now they show up, it's time to go to bed. I specifically tell them, you got to get out, I'm going to sleep. And I don't even try to be nice about it. I just tell them. And they know me well enough, and they've been around long enough that they understand. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just sticking to my practice. Uh, And so what was a more fixed karma when I was a teenager and in high school now has become a non-fixed karma. I can choose to engage in it or I can choose not to engage in it. I can choose to go drink that soda with my Chinese food or I can choose to have just some green tea. Either way, super easy. So while there are these different ideas of fixed, easier, non-fixed karmas, uh, we will see that as time goes on, a lot of what we had considered to be fixed uh, really isn't. Now, the primary cause of karma, here we're getting right down to it. Hopefully you've stayed with me through this. The primary cause of karma. Well, in the Yoga Sutras, we can see that the primary cause of suffering is a mistaken sense of self-identity. And then it goes on to say that suffering, which has not yet been experienced, is to be ended. This is specifically from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Now, this requires a radical shift of viewpoint from how everyone else thinks. Everyone else tells you you have to have these good relationships, you have to have all this money, you have to have the perfect health, you have to have all these things uh, in order to be happy. Well... Uh, that will give you some temporary happiness. And it is good to have those things because it makes life quite a bit easier. But even in the best circumstances, people die, people get sick, money is lost, you lose your positions, things that you thought were eternal crumble and fade away. Um, People that that you counted on, that you trusted, end up betraying you. And ideally, you have enough useful people in your life that that doesn't happen. And that's a karma as well. Uh, Recently, I had an issue with some uh, trust um, with some people that I knew. And um, they kind of said to me, well, well, because you have this trust issue, maybe you need to look at that, Ryan, because obviously that's a karma that you have. And there's some points missed there because I have quite a few people in my life that I trust implicitly. And I'm lucky in that regard. They've always been uh, upstanding. They've always said exactly what they felt. We were able to have this open communication. So we we have to be aware of the fact that, yes, there are some things that are uh, long-term karmas that we have to deal with. But if we look around to the rest of our life, if if it's only active sporadically in certain areas, um, that's not necessarily a profound theme. 
And you don't want to believe people who tell you it is. <laughs> but if you notice that you have this difficulty in, in many, many areas of your life and you can't trust anyone in your life, well, then yes, you might need to look at those things. Um, but anyway, back to the point. The primary cause of suffering is a mistaken sense of self-identity. When you look at yogis and the people that are awake and clear, um, they're not attached to anything. If people appreciate their presentations and enjoy the work that they put forth, fine, they do their job. If they get ridiculed, if they are uh, become the subject of a controversy, so what? They're not attached to this definition of being something in particular. Ramana Maharshi even, probably one of the most um, authentic, accessible teachers that have ever been. I mean, he spent his life on a couch in the middle of an ashram. So there was no privacy there. He wasn't able to do things behind closed doors. Uh, even him, there was a, a fellow who stood outside the ashram and would hand out leaflets to people coming to talk about how horrible Ramana Maharshi was. And when that was brought up to Ramana Maharshi, he said, no, that's right, it's fine, let him, let him do it. Let him stay there, let him hand those things out. He said, because the people who are going to believe it, well, they probably don't need to be here in the first place. And the people who have some discernment and clarity, they'll see right through it. So because of his, his, his uh, lack of attachment to, um, what's the word, um, image, self-image or, or, or how people saw him, he was able to remain authentic to what he knew was true. And you know this happens in your life. Sometimes people love you. Sometimes they hate you. Sometimes they think that you're wonderful. Sometimes they could care less. Sometimes it, there's always this rise and fall of appreciation for people. Sometimes your work goes very well. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have all the money you need. Sometimes you're broken in the hole. But if you pay attention, if you were that stuff, how could that be? Because it's always changing, yet you are still here. So with the Yoga Sutras, the primary cause of suffering is a mistaken, a mistaken self-identity. What yoga is driving you to do is to recognize that you are this eternal witnessing presence which observes the ever-changing experiences of nature, the rise and the fall. And when you actually have a direct experience of that, you are free. You are free. Um, whether your body is healthy or whether your body has some challenges. You know you're not your body. So internally, you're not disturbed by it. You know you're a human being. So sometimes things are going to go wrong. Sometimes things might go really wrong. But the more you are identified with that internal sense of self, the less upset you are about it. That doesn't mean you don't try to keep the engines running well. Because again, it's much easier to meditate when things are going well. But... The more skillful you get at meditation, the more you understand what you truly are, then when things go wrong, you can actually still meditate. You know, when my wife was in the hospital for a year and a half going through chemotherapy and bone marrow transplants and I was sleeping in the chair beside her every single night, I was getting no sleep. She wasn't either because things would beep. Nurses would come in. You know, blood needed to be taken. We have to take her to do this. I had no sleep for a year and a half and I was miserable. In, in body, mind, and spirit. And she was too. So we were going through this together. But because I had 18 years of consistent meditation practice, I still meditated every day. Every, every chance I got when there was a down moment, I would just sit up in that chair and I would go within. Why was I able to do that? Because I had 18 years of habit, 18 years of karma that I had been creating in this lifetime so that when things went that wrong, I could still turn within and experience what you experience in meditation. And that's what we need to do. Suffering which has not yet been experienced is to be ended. Now, this is the whole purpose of the Yoga Sutras and Kriya Yoga and Yoga practice. So we don't have time, and we're not going to go into all of that. Just simply learn Kriya Yoga. Do what you're doing. Um, if you want to study the Yoga Sutras, we go through that in year two of the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program. There's a downloadable course on the Kriya or on the Yoga Sutras at kriyogaonline.com. Mr. Davis has wrote a book on the Yoga Sutras, The Science of Self-Realization. I have done a commentary on the Yoga Sutras, Kriya Yoga Continuing the Lineage of Enlightenment. Everything that is in those texts, everything that is in the practice of yoga, that is the purpose of yoga is to end that which causes suffering, to end it. 
Some people translate it as avoid it. But if you look at how that word plays out, <clears throat> uh, it, it can, one of the nuances is you end it. So, uh, you can take that practically as suffering which has not yet been experienced is to be ended. Which means, um, I'm getting ready to, uh, have a reaction to something a friend or a family member did and I'm going to lose my temper and I'm going to create more suffering for both of us. Well, how do you end that? Before you experience it, you just shut it down right there. That's more practical stuff. Um, but it is the practice of yoga which stops your identification with all the stuff that causes suffering. You meditate and you recognize I'm not my body. So when disease or death comes around, you might be uncomfortable because it's not a pleasant temporary experience, but since you know you are not your body, you know what you are eternally, really, truly, deep down inside, you can say, yeah, I'm not going to enjoy this, but I know what I am, and my consciousness continues whether the body is there or not. That's why yogis can do that. That's why Ramana Maharshi, for example, when he was diagnosed with cancer, uh, they told him uh, they wanted him to have surgery, to have it removed. And he said, you know, whether you remove it or not, it doesn't really matter. You know, it'll probably just come back. And so he finally uh, agreed to the surgery. And sure enough, it came back. And um, he passed. But when people were upset about him, him leaving, he would always say things like, well, where can I go? How can I be away from you? And he wasn't saying the physical body. He meant the real essence of him, the spirit of him. It's always there because it is us. And in that process, he was illustrating, demonstrating, there is this eternal thing, presence, life. It's so subtle. You're not going to be able to recognize it in this mundane experience. That's why we meditate. But once you get a hold of it, once you know that's you, it's like when you recognize that you're not your clothes. You can take your clothes off every single day and you're still fine. You put new clothes on. But if you're, if you're identified with the clothing, you never want to take them off and they get old and ratty and smelly and disease causing. Uh, so this is kind of how we have to think about these things. So it is the practice of yoga, all, the whole practice of yoga, <clears throat> which ends the suffering. The practice of yoga eliminates obstacles to self-knowledge. Once you know what you are, you are free. Just like now, you know as an adult that you can pay your bills, that you can have healthy relationships, that, you know... You're capable, whereas when you were a child, you were at the whims of everyone else and you did not know these things. So the self-knowledge of your, your capability allows you to be successful and happy and peaceful at this point in time versus the way you were when you were a child. And as you practice meditation, you grow up spiritually. You grow into from the human experience to the angelic to the sannyasi. And again, by angelic, I don't mean wings flying around in heaven. I mean a, a, a clearer state of consciousness. Um, and the things that seem so important as a human aren't necessarily so important. And of course, refraining from harmful behaviors, faithful adherence to constructive practices, firm meditation posture, pranayama practice, internalized attention, concentration, meditation, and samadhi are the eight limbs of yoga practice. So it is through this that we, that, that's the whole point of, of yoga. Through this, we rise above, transcend, alter our karma. These things, these practices contribute to the development of sattva. So what is sattva? This, is, this comes up over and over again in the Yoga Sutras. Sattva is a state of clarity and understanding. You know when you are not bogged down by trauma, by anxieties, by obsessions and compulsions, when you're not bogged down by fears, when you're not bogged down by these things, you are clear and you are happy and things don't bother you so much, you know. But let's say you're bogged down by trauma, anxiety, um, memories that you can't deal with and someone cuts you off. Well, immediately you fly into a rage. It, it's not that big a deal. Someone cut you off. So what? Maybe they're in a hurry to take their loved one somewhere. But because you have this weight of all this other stuff bearing down on you. It's like the straw that breaks the camel's back and you lose it. 
Well, the purpose of yoga is to develop this quality of sattva, which is shedding traumas, shedding your attachments, shedding your anxieties, shedding all of this stuff, so that you naturally abide in a state of clarity and understanding. Um, I was talking to an individual, um, those of you who are Patreon members or... Um, students of the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, I have office hours where people can schedule and we can meet for 20 minutes at a time uh, just to catch up and, and see how their practice is doing. And uh, one of the students contacted me and we were talking um, over Zoom. And he said, you know, I had this interesting experience that I was at home and he has three kids and he works and he's married. I was at home and it was in in uh, during the weekend, and I didn't have a whole lot. I didn't have a whole lot to worry about. Meaning, I didn't have the work stress. The the kids were all taken care of, and in that time of, of of having that freedom, he says it's like I naturally went into a super conscious state. He's like, is that possible? I said yes, because the whole point of yoga practice is to to not not be identified with all that stress and all that struggle. So when you just kind of take some time to relax and there's not this backlog of stuff because one of the things we have to remember is that, for example, when I used to take people on retreats to Costa Rica, Wednesdays were always terrible because they're in a tropical paradise. They, they're being served the freshest, most amazing foods. They're meditating. They're doing yoga. They're getting massages. It's a beautiful situation, but Wednesdays were terrible. Why? Because they've just started to experience relaxation. They've just started to kind of sink into a, a space of safety and, and contentment. And what happens? All that backlog of crap that they've never dealt with, they don't understand why they've got anxiety, why they're feeling depressed, why they're feeling angry. Because all this stuff is now having, now it's safe. Now it can come out because they're relaxed. Um, so that's why when it comes to spirituality and meditation, I almost always recommend that working with a counselor, working with uh, a therapist to, to get through that stuff will make your meditation practice so much better. Resolving all of that stuff through skillful means will make it so that when that day comes and you are calm and nothing is going on, you can just simply release yourself into that super consciousness. And you don't have to worry about this backlog of garbage from your past ruining it. Um, so by developing a sattvic state, we're creating the groundwork to be able to see what is real. But we have to have done some pre preliminary work. That's why in the Yoga Sutras it says, and now instruction in yoga practice at the very beginning. And now instruction in yoga practice. It means you have been, you have done the work so that you can appreciate the experience. Because yoga is not meant to, to be your psychotherapy. Yoga is meant to give you realization of the depth of what you truly are. Your psychotherapy needs to be your psychotherapy. Just like um, when you start to change your diet positively, maybe now you have more gas. Maybe your digestion shifts and changes. It doesn't mean that eating more vegetables is bad for you. It means that your digestion now has to shift to processing vegetables versus all the garbage you've been feeding it. So the practice of yoga cont contributes to the development of sattva because it's in sattva that we can see and experience what is real. We are then able to be strong, capable, and safe. That's the key there. Once you are able to feel strong, capable, and safe, your meditation and yoga practice becomes one of the most enjoyable things of your life. It was described one time as getting in a nice hot bath. Just everything goes away but that, that warmth and that peacefulness. But if you've got this backlog of crap, of psychological complexes and so on, every time you manage to hit a state of clarity, you're, it's going to come up. So that's why you have to do some work to deal with that. And it's not yoga's role to do that. It's your counselor's role, your psychotherapist's role. Um, it's whatever self-help methods you can use to move through those things. Um, you know, I, I was in a, or not was, I am, um, I started developing a relationship with a teenager. You've heard me talk about her before, um, who had a really traumatic experiences in life. And then, uh, in the relationship, things became safer. Things became calmer. Things became just nicer, more, more 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is the case. I suppose I should ask her. More peaceful and more calm. And what happened, there was a period of time where uh, more of her stress started to come out. More of her anxiety started to come out. Why? Because now there was a safe space. And luckily, I had uh, wise elders around me to point that out to me because I'm thinking, what's going on here? You know, I would have given anything to feel so comfortable at this point and stage in my life. Um, why is this? Why is this frustration, this difficulty coming out? And uh, Jim Norton, uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, most helpful mentors, uh, retired Methodist minister, going to be eighty soon. He's been through a lot of stuff, and he said to me, "He's like Ryan." He just told me. He said, uh, "You know, you're providing you and Jasmine are providing now a wonderful, peaceful space." And because of that, there is this openness, this freedom that all that stuff that was down in there can come out freely because it's not going to be beat down. It's not going to be punished. And so that just might have to happen. And as far as I can tell, that's actually been the case. But we do this, too, in all of our all of our life situations. So yoga is making this space and this clarity. And we might need help sometimes to accept it, to process that backlog of crap. And then we are free. And the picture here of this family, you know, on a beach jumping up and down. Uh, I chose this picture specifically because um, in order to appreciate the sunlight, the ocean, the beach, you have to be able to, to be able to be there. And this is a, a family. And I chose this picture as well because when I think about the idea of sattva, clarity and understanding. Well, as we get deeper into the Yoga Sutras, it then goes on to say, but you even have to let go of attachment to sattva. You even have to let go of attachment to clarity and understanding. And in the beginning, I was always like, well, what's the point in even doing that? I mean, if you got to let go of it anyway, it just seems silly. So I wrestled with that for many years. Uh, But it finally occurred to me that sattva is like your jumping off point. In order to really understand what's being taught in yoga, You have to engage the practices to develop sattva so that you are safe, you are clear, you're not afraid of losing yourself in the infinite, you're not afraid of letting go of your personality, of your small sense of self, and you can can then jump off into the infinite. And I use this picture of the family, the happy family, because if you come from a happy family, what is the role of the parents in that family? to raise that child so that it feels confident, strong, capable, so that when it's 18 years old, 19 years old, it can say, hey, I'm leaving. You know, I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to uh, go get myself a, 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 an apartment, and I'm going to go start building my own life. And that healthy, happy family did that because there is a, a strength there, a security there, a capability that I can do that. The child can do that. And they go off and they do their best and they might fail, but they know they can come back and check back in and learn and grow from their family. But there's not an anxiety of leaving because there is strength and love there. Uh, versus a family that does what? That doesn't want their child to leave, that wants them to stay weak <clears throat> and wants them to stay around because the, the, the parents feel more comfortable having this person close. They don't want them to grow up and be strong and become their own person. So you see... Developing sattva from the yogic perspective is a lot like being a a very good parent or family where you're cultivating strength and safety and wisdom so you know the child can go out, can live, can be successful. And if they make a mistake, they don't, it doesn't matter because they can feel confident enough that they can change and grow. So when you're thinking about developing sattva, always try to remember this idea of it's like coming from a healthy, supportive, strong, uh, autonomous family that wants, that wants the children to grow up and be strong in their own. They want them to go away and not have separation anxiety. Uh, because once you experience sattva, you don't sit there and think, oh, well, do I really want to let go of my small self? Do I really want to you know, leave all this stuff behind? You become so strong in spirit, so strong in light and understanding that you look back and say, that was great. It served its purpose. On to the next thing. So this is why I chose this particular uh, photo here. Now again, 
uh, in this picture, this is uh, Isha Das, Craig Bullock. He's the speaker who will be with us uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time today, and also the director of the Assisi Institute, which, again, we'll be doing uh, a live in-person retreat at in September of 2021, for those of you who might be listening to this after the fact. Um, I saw this quote of his, and I thought it was brilliant. If you want to be free, then give up your fear of suffering. If you want to be free, then give up your fear of suffering. Now, this might seem like a hard right turn compared to all the stuff we've been talking about, but it's really not because uh, suffering is a part of life. Change, the, dif- the difference is we don't have to identify with it. As I mentioned, you're going to get sick at some point. People are going to die at some point. People are going to leave you at some point. Things are going to break. You're going to get a new car. Um, The culture that you live in is going to take a hard right turn, and you're going to wonder how you even relate to your family members with their political ideologies. Um, You name it. Something's going to happen. It's just the nature of life. It's just the way it goes. And so... uh, Most of us try to practice yoga and meditation and spirituality to stop that. But that's not something, you can't stop the wheels of nature. But through yoga, you start to recognize that you are not subject to your car dying. Well, your car dies. Great. That's not you. You get a new car. You move on. Um, Your friends come and they go. You recognize you're not your friends. You persist. You let go of the attachment. But that doesn't mean that when your friends leave or someone dies or you are unhealthy in some reason, it doesn't mean that you don't get frustrated or it doesn't mean that you don't grieve or you don't have sadness because that's natural. The trouble is when you identify with it, when you um, define yourself through it. And I'm, I've been guilty of that. Uh, you know, after Melissa passed, I was so engrossed in that suffering and in that grieving. That's all I knew. I knew deep down inside I have to move, I had to move beyond it. It didn't mean that I was it didn't mean I was going to dishonor the experience, but I let my body feel the grief. I let my mind feel the rage and the sadness. I let it all out, all the while recognizing that it's part of life. And so If you want to be free, then you give up your fear of suffering. When suffering comes, you don't hold on to it in the sense that you try to complain about everyone and define yourself by it. But if you're feeling sad, if you're having heartbreak, just feel it. But also be aware of letting it pass, not holding on to it. Eventually things change and you feel better because you're always going to have this up and this down. And if you begin to not fear suffering anymore... The amount of freedom you experience becomes, it's mind-boggling. I wish I could explain it. And I, I, I wish I could say more about this. So I'm just going to let you sit with it for a little while and come back to it maybe. Write this down. If you want to be free, then give up your fear of suffering. Ramana Maharshi. How does yoga and meditation free us from karma? Freedom is only knowing the self within yourself. Concentrate and you will get it. Your mind is the cycle of births and deaths. It is your mind that creates all the attachments. And so through the practice of yoga, as I keep saying, as we've heard again and again, it is learning to redirect yourself back to that witnessing presence. And it is not easy. I mean, actually, it's the easiest thing you can do, but most people's experience, mine as well, is that it takes consistent concentration until you get the hang of it. Because when you're so addicted to all the stuff around here, it's all you know. You have to, little bit by bit, go in and and have that glimpse of that clearer reality. And every time you go and you catch a glimpse, you start to trust it a little bit more. Oh, okay, well, maybe it is real. And as the years go by, you start to recognize, huh, Maybe it is the actual real thing until eventually you're able to to sink your awareness inward through the practice of yoga repeatedly and then you don't pay attention to the mind anymore. 
You still use it to balance your checkbook if you still got a checkbook. You still use it to calculate your taxes. You still use it to plan a house. You still use it to think, would this person be right to participate in this with me? You still use it for those kinds of things, but you don't identify with it. I think all kinds of things. Some stuff, I wonder, where did that come from? And when I'm committed to doing something, all this stuff might come up about why I don't want to do it. Well, after all this time of being able to experience this idea of, of being the self, I recognize I don't have to listen to it. So it can chatter and talk all at once, and I'm still going to say, I don't care, I'm still going to go do this thing. Um, and you learn that the mind has its place, but you don't have to pay attention to it. And the more that that happens, the more you start to sink your attention into this idea of the self, to concentrate on the self and hold it there. And from the Bhagavad Gita, to action alone hast thou a right, and never at all to its fruits. Let not the fruits of action be thy motive, neither let there be any attachment to inaction. And this is the hardest thing to get for a yogi. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes contemplation, it takes paying attention to living. Um, life is going to happen. You're going to get up in the morning. And you're going to go to the fridge and you're going to say, well, am I going to eat some toast and avocados or am I going to eat eggs? And you just sit there and find, I'm going to eat eggs. You just do it. You eat the eggs. Uh, you just follow the path of life. You sit and you contemplate. And if you are attuned to this inner self, you decide, what am I going to do today for work? And if you are attuned to the inner self, not all the distractions, not all the, the silly little conditioning, which is hard to get through, but you do in time, okay, I'm going to undertake this project today, or I'm going to call this person, I'm going to do this thing. You don't know where that's going to lead you, but you are attuned to the self and you follow it. So the hardest part to move beyond karma is to let go of attachment to your motivations. You do your best because it's what you are inspired to do based on the principles of yoga, and you let go of the rest. You let go of the rest. Um, and you never know what's how it's going to work. And again, Laurel used this example the other day. Um, it's one I've heard before. Uh, many people have used it. The farmer who um, gets a new horse and all of his uh, neighbors say, oh, how lucky you must be. You've had the money to get a new horse. He says, well, we'll see. And then the horse gets away. Oh, what a terrible thing. You know, you, you lost the horse. You just got all that money down the drain. The farmer says, well... I don't know, it's too late, it's too early to tell what's going to happen. Then the horse comes back and he brings uh, a mare with it and a, and a colt and he brings more horses with it. And all the, uh, all the neighbors say, uh, wow, that's such good fortune. You, you, now you had one horse, now you have multiple horses. And he says, well, it's too early to tell. And then his son is trying to break one of the, uh, the new horses and he falls and he, he hurts his hip and he has a limp now. And the neighbors say, oh, terrible, you know, now your son can't do any work. It's a horrible thing. And the farmer says, well, it's too early to tell. And then the army comes through conscripting soldiers. And they can't conscript the son because he's got a limp. And, of course, it goes on. What a wonderful thing. Your son doesn't have to go off to war and get shot. So, you see, the hardest part of all this is recognizing the mystery of life, that we cannot appreciate or understand the why of why everything happens, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, we can't. And learning to embrace that mystery is our path. And we are anchored in the practices of yoga, truthfulness, harmlessness, contentment. The reason they're so important is because as long as you live your life following those principles, that's the only thing you're supposed to do, not for any other reason than for their own sake. Then whatever happens, it's not up to you. It's up to this infinite consciousness, which is the real you. And then your life proceeds as it's supposed to. And you might end up in a ditch. You might be celebrated across the globe. It doesn't matter. The important thing is what is going on within you. And it is the practice of yoga which helps you abide in that state. So just like I want you to contemplate, uh, if you want to be free, then give up your fear of suffering on your own. We also need to contemplate very deeply. And this took me years, okay? I'm saying that to you so you're not thinking this is something you're going to sit down and figure out 
uh, in a day or two. I meditated upon this for a long time. <laughs> to action alone hast thou a right, and never at all to its fruits. Let not the fruits of action be thy motive. Neither let there be in thee any attachment to inaction. Now, how hard is this to do? We're nearing the end, and then we'll take some questions, but I thought this was a nice way of understanding this. Uh, in the book that I mentioned I was listening to yesterday, uh, one of Ramana Maharshi's books being read out loud, Ramana Maharshi said that there are three kinds of aspirants, three kinds of people who are figuring this out. And they're like either gunpowder, charcoal, or, or wet firewood. We have an image here of a, a monk. I thought this was great. I, I, I googled gunpowder, and for some reason I find a monk <laughs> running away from something being blown up. Uh, we have an image of a monk running away from an explosion. And there are, there are individuals who are like gunpowder, and in order to ignite gunpowder, it just takes a spark. Just bam, boom, it's understood. They, they, they know how to start practicing yoga. They're committed to doing it, even though they might have a lot of changes to do. It's understood. They're committed. They're just doing it. The, the explosion happens. Or are you like charcoal? Well, charcoal will light, um, but it takes more time. You have to really sometimes hold a match to it or, or put some other things to get it burning, but it eventually ignites. So it takes, it, it takes repeated exposure to these kinds of ideas before finally the, the charcoal ignites and it starts burning, becomes spiritually alive. Um, and we're all different in this regard. Or are you le like wet firewood? It doesn't matter if you are or not, because eventually you catch fire... <laughs> At some point in time, but many people are like wet firewood in that they come back to yoga, they go away, they come back, they try to meditate, they try to do their best, they fall away, they go to sleep, they wake up, years go by and they keep being pulled back to it, but they don't quite catch fire. It's like you're holding the match if you've ever tried to let uh, wet, let, wet, light, wet firewood. If you ever tried to wet, light, wet firewood, you know, it takes a while. So... You just got to keep putting that match to it, keep putting that fire to it until it smokes and it smolders and finally it catches. So the question is, how hard is it to do? It depends on you. Are you like gunpowder? Boom, ready to go. All it takes is someone to say, this is important. This is what you got to do. You say, great, I'm making all the changes today. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle, but I'm doing it. Or are you like charcoal? You think about it a little bit. Well, it makes sense, but I'm not really sure I want to commit to letting go of attachment to these things I think are so important. But I'll try meditation, and I'll, I'll try to switch my diet, and um, I'll do my best. And it might take them many, many years until they finally recognize, ah, this is why it's so important to let go of attachment. This is why it's so important to be truthful. This is why it's so important to understand contentment. Then the coals catch, and things are, are on fire. Or are you like wet firewood, where you've got to come to the retreats, You've got to read the books. You've got to meet the teachers. And you've got to doubt it all the way. And you've got to think, I don't know about this. There's a part of me that thinks there's something to it, but I'm, I'm not sure. And it doesn't matter, though, because even though you've got the doubts, even though you keep coming back to it, doesn't matter how long it takes, eventually that wet firewood also catches. But this all boils down to how hard is it to do. It simply depends on you. And you have to be consistent Keep trying. Even if you're wet firewood, eventually you're going to catch fire. But it takes time. Now, yoga reveals the truth. Behavior reveals your experience. I, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to share this because many people think that if you just practice yoga, everything's going to go right. Nothing ever is going to happen that's going to be bad or, or make you sad or anything like that. That's not true. What yoga does is it reveals the truth of what you are inside. That's it. Now that will alter your outward experience because if you're living a more inwardly centered life, you're less likely to make more problems for yourself. However, how you live your life is going to determine what your outward experience is. Yoga will help you make better decisions, certainly. But... You're still going to be subject to genes. No matter how well you try to 
fix your gene expression, you still might roll the dice and get a bad roll. Um, you still might be around people from time to time that make your behavior or your thoughts or your feelings experience a state of difficulty. Um, so remember, yoga reveals the truth. It doesn't make you a superhuman. The people who promote that also promote a lot of self-sabotage because you think, well, they're superhuman. They, they did it because they're superhuman. Uh, and then you think you can't do it, and so you don't. Well, they went through all this stuff too, believe me. So you practice your yoga to rise above, transcend, and realize the truth of what karma is. And then while you're doing that, you organize your life, you analyze your thoughts, your behaviors, your, your feelings. You make a plan to shift those thoughts, behaviors, and feelings to match what you want to experience. Again, it doesn't mean it's going to work out perfectly, but I guarantee you, if you start thinking a little differently, imagining you can be different, you're a heck of a lot more likely to have that positive experience. If you can imagine you can have a better work environment, you're much more likely to do the things, to make the choices, however hard they might be, to find that work environment versus being caught up in the idea of, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. So you see, we're not trying to teach magical thinking. But we are trying to allow you to understand that for the most part, you do have a bit more control than you might think, and it's worth it to engage that control to the best of your ability, to remain receptive to new ideas and new ways of being, and to follow the lead. You don't know where things are going to lead you. I, early on, said I want to be completely awake and I want to be completely free of all of my karma. I was enthusiastic about that. I meant it. I, I really meant it. I was uh, 19, 20, somewhere around there, and I went out in the woods, and I fasted, and I made this declaration. Now, did I know that in order to experience that, I was going to have to um, watch my wife, whom I've known since I was 16 and loved that whole time, die in front of me so that I would lose my attachment to a body of someone I, of a loved one? Did I know that I was going to have to have my house uh, roll down a hill and fall in a river so I would lose my attachment to home? <laughs> Did I know I was going to have to move from uh, a very supportive, loving community uh, back to my hometown, which I couldn't even imagine uh, I would ever do, so that I would experience um, a deeper sense of community and connection with the people I've met here? Did I know all that was going to happen when I made that statement? No. Had someone told me that was going to happen when I was 20, would I have made that statement? Probably not. But I made that statement, and life happened, and I learned meditation. I learned all these positive things, and I learned how to heal. But I also had to go through these other experiences so that it became absolutely pristinely clear as to what was real and what was not real. So when you're doing this, you want to be receptive to the changes that occur and follow it because you never know where it's going to lead. Did I ever imagine that I was going to have a, a relationship with a, a, um, a, a pseudo uh, father-daughter relationship with a teenager? No, I hated kids. I didn't think I ever wanted to have kids. But I ended up having a beautiful relationship. Did I ever imagine that I would meet someone else and end up feeling so comfortable that um, it allowed me to have time and freedom to let this work thrive that you're experiencing after losing uh, Melissa? No, I, I never could have conceived of any of that. But I gritted my teeth, I cried, I meditated, I rolled the dice, and I saw what happened. And sometimes we have to do these things. So you may be the architect of your own experience for the most part, but you can't quite control you can't quite control the specifics of it all, and you have to be willing to roll with it. You have to be willing to flow with it. Now, two final considerations. And those of you who want to hang around and, and, and I'll, I'll answer these questions, I know we're getting towards the end of our time. I'll do that for a few more minutes. I really didn't expect this to go that long, <laughs> but it's the way it works. So two final considerations. Karma is contagious. You will tend to behave and think like those people you spend the most time with mentally and physically. You will tend to share experiences with these individuals. Remember, the model of karma we tend to think of is there's this linear progression of you go from here to there to there, lifetime to lifetime. But if we think of it as we are this one infinite consciousness, 
it's much easier to understand how karma is contagious. Um, when you are around people who think poorly of themselves, who don't have good boundaries, who don't aspire to be anything more than their collection of quirks, idiosyncrasies, sorrows, and desires, um, that's what you're going to tend to think and, and be like. Uh, when you are around people who are motivated, who feel a draw towards uh, a, a more inward life, who want to live better, healthier, cleaner, you're going to tend to do that. Um, it's just the nature of things. You will tend to think like the people you are with. I remember uh, when I started shifting gears from relationships I had um, from high school and college to newer relationships, I recognized that when I was around certain people, I got into these certain kind of thought patterns. When I was around certain family members, like my grandmother was super anxiety-ridden about everything. You know, if it started to rain, don't go anywhere because you're going to die in a car crash. Um, I would get caught up in those things. When I was around people who were sad and depressed, this is one of the reasons why I had to stop doing some of the... Uh, uh, the personal work that I would do with people, natural health work, because I would get so much into what they were experiencing as I, as I was trying to help them that I would become overwhelmed with grief and sadness. I had to learn to be stronger. Um, the people you work with, um, they influence you, your family members, your friends, but I said mentally and physically. So yes, they're the people you're in physical proximity with. But like I discussed this morning, we are in mental proximity now by joining together to study karma, to meditate together. So when you are, when you are attuning to individuals and choosing to be like people that are more, uh, clearer, you will tend to experience that. Um, when I thought about interacting with people, you know, early on, it was Melissa, Roy Eugene Davis. Uh, I had a few friends that were meditators, but that was about it. Those are the people I attuned to. And because of that, I had greater clarity. I had greater sense of purpose. And when I would start kind of thinking about, you know, people whom I had troubles with or people who were in a lot of difficulty and couldn't get out of it, uh, I started to think that way. So you have to remember your karma is contagious. You will tend to share experiences with the individuals that you relate to. It doesn't mean you have to abandon everybody, but if you are not strong enough to maintain a state of clarity, you might have to work on that. You know, early on, I, 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 early on for five years, I cut off all relationships pretty much with everyone just so I could focus on meditation. I spent time with Melissa and Roy and a few other people. <clears throat> but then after that five year period, I recognized I was stronger. So I could go into situations with family members who were extremely anxious, where I could go spend time with people who just wanted to play darts and drink beer at the bar. And it wasn't bothering me because I developed a, an inner strength and I was able to maintain that state of clarity. I was not essentially attuning to them. As Sri Yukteswar said, um, you eventually become so strong that this clarity kind of exudes from you. And then when you get in their space, they are more benefiting from you versus you being influenced by them. So karma is contagious. And finally, your life is an adventure. You can't control everything. Sometimes there are good surprises, sometimes there aren't. Your purpose is to realize that you are the adventurer and not the things that happen during the adventure. I can't say what's going to happen to you in this life. I can't say what's going to happen to me in this life. <laughs> I can have a general idea, and for the most part, those ideas have worked out generally, but their specific expression I could not have ever imagined. Where I am now, it's, it's where I had imagined being in regards to the general idea of it, but the specifics of it are radically different. It's okay. It's, it's fine. It's worthwhile. Um, things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go good. But you have to remember that the whole purpose of this is to let that karma exhaust itself. Let the good come. Let the bad come. Let it go. Do your best to live in harmony with the principles of yoga. And in doing so, you will start to recognize that you are this essence, this witness, this adventurer, which, ex which feels the grief, which feels the love, which experiences the light, which experiences the inertia. And the more you become aware of yourself being that, then you are no longer defined by it and you are actually free of karma. And then you've broken the cycle of rebirth. Then you become the center of it all, the center of it all. 
And you don't have to come back and, and live in 2021 with all the issues of 2021, nor do you have to reincarnate in the 1940s during World War II, nor do you have to incarnate you know, in the 24th century so that you can travel around on a starship. Um, you're free of it. And so then you, you continue to these settler realms. And these settler realms, you can't, we can't talk about, I can't describe, you can only experience them uh, through the practice of yoga. And then what you see and experience here, in a way, becomes like what your life was when you were a child. You remember it, it's there, but it doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on what you're up to, what you're capable of, what you're doing. So while karma can be understood in all these ways, and this is a useful model to have. Um, we have to remember that it is really the engagement of, of yoga practice and the teachings of yoga and the lifestyle of yoga which frees us from the need to have this model. So contemplate all of this. Take some time with it. You might have to revisit it. There's a lot here. And we will look at some questions now, just for a few minutes. Should we understand karma to be the same thing as destiny? Um, potentially, you can understand it however you want. Um, you know, some people, I, I don't remember how interchangeable it was, but uh, there was this idea that, you know, there is fate, which is the stuff that you're probably going to experience, but you've got some uh, control over. And so you, you make choices to... Um, make those changes. And destiny is those things that are so strong that no matter what you do, it's just going to happen. So you just have to let it go and surrender to it. And the, the theory is that um, fate, what, that which you're fated, uh, you can change. That, what, that which you are fated to experience, you can change through choices, through changing your thoughts, behaviors, and so on. That which is destined you can pray and you can uh, ask for God or the higher consciousness to intercede and change. And it's possible that it can be changed. But if it's not, if God can't change or, destiny, or that destiny can't be changed, then we have to move into a state of surrender. So I don't think too much about destiny and fate in that way. I mean, it's just hard to, to pinpoint what do you mean by it. So how do we overcome suffering and death? Why I'm asking is a real example of my mom for the past three years. She was ill and suffering, even though she is not ready to take any pills or not ready to come to hospital. Um, if we, something to come, she will behave arrogant. What is really happening to her by her, by karma here? She's exhausting whatever experience that this karma is meant to be for her. So you can't interfere with that. Um, sometimes you just have to, I remember again, when Melissa was passing, um, we knew she was done because after everything she had been through and the doctor said, that's it, you know, that's, you just got to, she can go home or she can try again. But if she tries again, she'll most likely die in the hospital and she wanted to die at home. And so, um, you know, Mr. Davis, what he told me was, he, he said, you know, I can't, I wish I could perform miracles because he was a teacher for both myself and Melissa. And he came, he drove th two to three hours from the center to actually be with her for a while. And um, he said, I wish I could perform miracles. But he said, Ryan, he said this to me specifically. He said, what you have to do is you have to remain established in the self. That's your role. He didn't say, pray harder, do this, force her to do that. He says, you have to remain established in the self. And that was the most important. Uh, that was the most important uh, lesson and advice he could give me. So we have to find a way to make peace with that. And you, as a caretaker, as someone who's who's going through that, may, might have to work with a counselor or a therapist to learn to deal with that. So yoga is not going to do that for you. You have to work that out. Um, you have to work that out from a psychological perspective. Can you speak on the gunas and their role with karma? Uh, how can one transcend rajas and tamas to live a more sattvic life? How much control do we have of this process? Again, just study the yoga sutras. Everything that we taught, that we teach, 
in the in the Kriya Yoga path in the Yoga Sutras, that's how you develop more sattva. It's as simple as that. Guilty of being attached to my clothes. They get very raggedy. It's okay. You can be attached to things. Um, I used to be extremely attached to a few things. Um, one of them was my musical instruments. Um, and I'm still attached to them. I want to take care of them. I want them to last for the duration. But if something happens to them, you all get frustrated. But if they were lost, if they were stolen, if something went really wrong, it's okay. Uh, I'll let the frustration pass. So it's okay to have some things which you are attached to. You just have to keep your perspective, not get overwhelmed by it. You're still going to be a human. Be a human. It's not going to matter when you die. Then you'll say, ha, 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 what was I doing being so upset about that? You can try to adopt that now, or you can just wait. <laughs> Either way. Okay, can you explain the state of superconsciousness? What is the purpose of it, or is it just a natural result of practicing the eight limbs? Um, at what stage would a yogi experience this? Um, that, that's a little beyond the, the scope of our topic today. I'll, I'll speak to it briefly. Superconsciousness, there are different levels of superconsciousness. There is a level of superconsciousness where you are aware that you are awareness. And you feel the body, and you still see the thoughts, but they're just like the weather. Meaning you look outside and you see some clouds, but it doesn't bother you. You know that you are looking at the clouds. When you, when you shift into that space of you are aware of your thoughts, you are aware of the environment, you are aware... That's a superconscious state because you're not you're not caught up in. You know, I remember when I was a, a teenager and I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. Every time I would mow the grass, I'd be thinking about planning a game or what my character was going to do, and I was so engrossed in it that sometimes I would have to shake my head and say, "Wow, that's something." But that that's not superconscious. That's engrossed, defined by everything you're thinking about. Or when you get so frustrated about something or so into something, but when you're able to step back and just observe it. That is a lower type of superconsciousness. A higher type of superconsciousness is when you are free. It feels like you're free in space and the thoughts or the experiences might be way off on the periphery. But you are simply abiding as stillness for the most part. So superconsciousness, you catch glimpses of that throughout the day. And yes, this is, um, this is the natural result of yoga practice. By going through all of the steps of yoga practice, eventually you learn to access that state at will, and you learn to abide there. And meditation is the training grounds for it. And a yogi can experience it at any stage, but usually it's after they've learned to sit down, sit still, let go of their traumas and their conditioning and their frustrations and all those things, and they can simply just be, just be present. <laughs> Can you help our dear ones clean their karma as it is contagious, or is everyone responsible for their own karma? That's a wonderful question. Um, first of all, yes, everyone is responsible for their own karma. Now, there is a way to help people with their own karma, and that is not by that is by avoiding reacting to them. Meaning, if someone is going through a difficult time, you don't uh, get in it with them. You remain clear and supportive. You let them grieve. You let them do whatever they're going to do. Or if someone challenges you or is aggressive to you, you learn to be peaceful, not react. Just let it go. Or if someone's harassing you or uh, something like that, again, this is why the idea of harmlessness is so important. You, you practice abiding in a peaceful state, not reacting, not feeding it. Because if you're not feeding it, you're not reflecting it back to them, it's just dissolving. Now, they might not like that because many people want a reaction out of you, uh, but that's not your business. When people are going through suffering, again, the best way to help them with their karma is not to act like you can heal them, you can change them. It's simply to care for them, to show them unconditional love, to be present for them, to let them cry, to let them experience what they're experiencing. Just simply say, I'm here. Just be a presence that is there for them. Um, that is the best way that you can do this. When little I used to see as if from above, this still happening, does this have any karmic meaning? I don't understand that sentence, so I can't respond to that. 
<laughs> okay, final question. It's a good one too. Is humanity an attachment? It seems like you have to disattach from all that makes you a human. Um, <laughs> humanity is an attachment. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, just like in the same way that wanting to be like everyone else is an attachment. Why is it that so few people actually make progress on the spiritual path? Because they want to be like everybody else. They don't want to be alone. They want to think like everyone. They want to be able to relate to everyone. This is why I love this um, uh, vehicle of teaching online. This is why the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship course is primarily online, because I want you at home doing your own work, not getting caught up in what everyone else is doing, not gossiping or chatting about, I had this experience, or what do you think about that? I want you to have your own experience. So you lose attachment to this idea of, of having uh, a group that, that you are like. You can know that they're out there, just like you know there are all these people out there that are doing the same thing. That's enough. Um, but yes, humanity, though, uh, maybe I wouldn't say that, that you have to dis disconnect from humanity. You have, to dis you have to let go of attachment to the, the negative sides of humanity, because humanity can be beautiful. Humanity in its natural, clearest state lives harmlessly, truthfully, without attachment, without possessions, contentedly. That is the natural state of being human. Okay, so what you have to do is identify with that, because that's going to develop sattva. And as we've seen, yes, you want to identify with sattva so that you grow up strong, so that you can eventually let it go. However, um, when you're trying to develop sattva, at least as of uh, June 2021, I'm pretty sure the majority of human consciousness is more driven by fear and uh, they don't want to be truthful because they're afraid and they don't want to be content because someone will get ahead of them and they don't want to let go of their possessions because then what will they have? Um, so what I would say is what you're learning to let go of at this point in time in this current situation is the average state of humanity. But what we're doing as yogis is we're embodying the highest state of humanity. So humanity can experience and process these higher states. Uh, but what gets in our way? We want to be like everybody else. We want people to feel like uh, we're like them, or we want to feel like them. Um, we don't want to be ostracized because we're different. Um, these are the things we have to let go of. And they're easy to do once you start to recognize what you are internally. And as time goes on, uh, you actually start to meet people that are supportive of that and that are that you can be completely forthright with and honest with. And they will appreciate it. And they might not like it, but you, you, you have that kind of rapport. You will begin to find and recognize those people who are also doing this thing. And they will come into your life and they will stay in your life as long as they're able. And the people that uh, aren't, aren't able to do that, they will fall away. Maybe through some kind of drama or some kind of uh, misunderstanding. But as long as you are doing your best to be authentic and have integrity, it doesn't matter. You let them go. Um, so, yeah, I can see how you ask that question. But it's not humanity, the pristine version of humanity, the possibility of humanity. It is how humans really act right now. And um, and that's the hard part for a lot of people. But you get the hang of it eventually. And so it's not really that big of a deal. It might take a little while, but it's really not that big of a deal. It's wonderful to have this discussion with you. Um, but take some time to reflect upon what you've learned. Think about the most important bit that came up for you. And do some journaling about it. See how you can integrate that change, that understanding into your life. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.